Hi everybody, welcome to Radical Civility, a project of Public Square Magazine. My name is Ben Piccini. Today we're talking about the sanctity of life and abortion in particular. We're talking about it because abortion might be the most controversial topic I am aware of in American public discourse. And so I talked to some of my friends, admittedly, some of my friends primarily on the right on this issue, and I asked the question, how can we discuss this a little bit better? There are a couple of things that have pushed me to want to talk about this, and it's not one that we're gonna talk about once, we'll probably talk about it a lot. First, how can we have a conversation better? How can we listen better to the other side? How can we argue in better faith? And I think that's a really valuable part of this discussion. A second reason is because recently, um, Mexico uh, banned, or I should say overturned, what's the, I don't know the right language, I'm not smart enough, um, ruled unconstitutional bans on abortion. And at the same time, Texas passed a very, very strict abortion law. And so with all of those things going on, I wanted to hear from my friends who I trust, who broadly agree with me, because as a very pro-life person, I was having concerns about the new Texas abortion law. In addition, I've noticed that there are a number of people who are beginning to uh, re, how do I say this? I don't want to say mischaracterize, but to reinvent uh, uh, their interpretation of the church's reading on abortion. And I wanted to ask if I was crazy, uh, because I have always been very pro-life, and I've always assumed that the church was very pro-life, with some exceptions, uh, some notable exceptions that are really important. And so when I go on Twitter and I see people saying, well, actually, the church is very, very pro-choice, it's, it's a bit odd. And so I wanted to ask some of my friends, am I, am I off base on that? Now, a couple of my friends say something really, really well, and I, I love it, and it needs to be repeated here. Some people sometimes say that the church has no political positions, and I think that's a pretty significant misreading of what's going on. As my friends put it, that would be like saying that the church has no position on music simply because it never tells you what albums to buy. The church doesn't tell us who to vote for, but it certainly has strong political implications through its doctrine and through what we're expected to be as Christian people. And so as I look at this, I ask myself the question, um, where does the church fall on abortion? I don't think it has no position. Uh, look, legislation is hard. I'm, I'm not saying that it's easy or straightforward and how best to prevent it. That's complicated stuff. But the fundamental issue of sanctity of life, I think that has been taught pretty clearly. And so I wanted to get together a group of my friends, again, primarily a group of friends who agree with me broadly, and say, where are we on this? Is this correct? And how do you feel about the Texas abortion law? I should note before we get into this, it's a pretty tough topic. I'm sure we don't cover it in enough thoughtfulness, but we did try. And I enjoyed getting to learn from people that I respect and admire and to hear a little bit more from them. So with that, I will shut up and get to the episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Radical Civility. This is a project of Public Square Magazine. I talked about that a little bit last week, and I'm really excited to be partnering with them. Tonight, we are going to be having a conversation about life, the sanctity of life, and specifically abortion. Um, and I'm very excited. Why don't I turn it to each of our guests just to introduce yourself really quickly and talk about how you came to this issue and why you find it important. So my name is Hannah Syriac. I graduated from BYU with a bachelor's in classics and I'm doing a master's in comparative studies. Uh, I became pro-life when I discovered what the abortion, the abortion issue was. Uh, my interest in abortion was pretty early on. I had heard about it in probably 2013. I decided to look into it when I had my first laptop. It was one of the first things that I Googled was abortion. Uh, I came to a very, very staunch pro-life position, uh, maintained that when I went to my Catholic college and started getting into pro-life advocacy then. Um, I describe myself as a pro-life feminist uh, because I think that 
the, the life issue is directly related to women, as well as being a human rights, uh, human rights violation. So I come at it from that angle, um, and I, I'm not pro-life because I'm religious. I'm pro-life because I think that life starts at conception and that the Constitution tells us that we have to secure life, and it does not grant life. So that's a little bit about my positioning on this matter. <laughs> I can't really tell where you stand on this. So thanks for that, Hannah. That was, you're very I subtle. know, yeah, <laughs> very subtle. <laughs> Fantastic, thank you. And I, I wanna come back to um, feminism and pro-life. I, I find that really interesting. Christopher. My name is Christopher Cunningham. I'm the managing editor for Public Square Magazine and a contributing editor for the Deseret News. Uh, I, uh, I wrote a piece for the Deseret News in August in response to uh, Mississippi's new abortion law uh, and, uh, and how the uh, technology surrounding reproduction interacts with the jurisprudence around it. Um, and I'm currently looking into Texas's new abortion law and how the bounty aspects of that law may uh, affect religious freedoms uh, issues. And so that's my interest in the conversation. Fantastic. All right, and Daniel Ortner. Hi, I'm Daniel Ortner. I'm an attorney. Uh, I practice constitutional law. I work for public interest, uh, do public interest litigation. Uh, in my kind of day job, I, I focus on uh, First Amendment, you know, free speech issues are kind of my, 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 my passion. But I have also a background in religious liberty litigation. Um, so I'm interested in abortion. Uh, in, uh, I think I've been interested in it since I was really a teenager. It's been to me a, a really important moral issue uh, from then. My views on it have changed over the years. I, for college, I was very uh, left of center, and I was very—I I became uh, pro-choice, and I uh, reawakened my, my kind of pro-life uh, convictions reawakened when I joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints when I was an undergrad in college. Um, really came to appreciate the importance of preserving life. Um, I've written uh, about uh, in Public Square magazine and uh, written in Desert News a little bit about abortion as well. So it's a topic I've uh, followed closely. I have a strong thoughts on and uh, hope to bring a, a legal uh, a legal background to this conversation that, that will hopefully be helpful in light of the, the Texas law and, and other other developments that have been happening in the past uh, couple of months. Perfect. Thank you. And Amanda. Hi, um, I'm Amanda Freebaron. I am a master's of education student and a former high school English teacher. And um, I write occasionally for Public Square and my interest in abortion, I think, comes from um, just a general, uh, like like Hannah, a general interest in feminist issues and in women's issues. Um, and also uh, as a mom, um, it's something that uh, becoming a mom uh, shifted my views a lot. Um, I used to consider myself pretty pro-choice um, and uh, that in the past few years, um, when I became a first-time mother, and um, I can talk about this a little bit more later, but when I became a first-time mother, and also as I um, researched more about the abortion issue and and took it less um, at face value that if you cared about women, you were um, uh, you you had to be pro-choice. Um, uh, started kind of questioning the misconceptions that I had um, uh, about abortion. My views have completely um, shifted um, more in the pro-life position. Um, and uh, so I'm excited to talk about it tonight. 
Awesome. Well, lovely to have all of you. And I'm Ben Pacini, and I just like to talk to people about really hard topics that are going to make people mad uh, on Twitter, um, because I think that's actually what civility is about. It's about setting ground rules. The way that I think about this is that the better the ground rules, the better the civility, right? The better the, the, the structure that you have, the more complicated issues you're able to address without people yelling at each other or wanting to hurt each other. I want to start with this question. Why is this conversation so hard? And uh, specifically, the civility aspect is how can we have this conversation better? Arthur Brooks says that we don't need to disagree less, we need to disagree better. And that's something that I feel really deeply in my bones. Now, there's, there's a, a story that I'll tell you real quick. Um, my wife is in a Facebook group, and they do a really good job talking about really, really difficult topics. And of course, that gets me excited because of the civility stuff. And I said, well, how do they do this? And how do they do that? And she's, she's giving me ideas and rules and different things that they, they believe in. And I said, okay, well, how do, they, how do they do like really tough stuff like abortion and gay rights? And she said, well, they, I've never seen them get in a fight over it. And I said, that's amazing. What do they do? She said, well, they only have one rule. And that is you can discuss anything you want to except uh, abortion. <laughs> And that's how they are able to not get into fights about abortion, um, because it is so sensitive that even in this group where they have camaraderie and friendship and all of this stuff, they have just decided that this is too hot of an issue. Now, let me also say, if you are tuning in, I want to be really clear up front. This is a contentious issue. I love what, what Hal Boyd says. He says, there's these but of course statements. You're writing an essay, right? And one of the things you need to clarify and get across is in your essay, people might misunderstand. So you have to say something that should be obvious, but you know, you, you got to put it in. It's, it's a but of course kind of a statement. There are not enough but of course statements in the world to properly approach this topic. There's no way that we can. And so if you're going to listen to this and you're not on our side, that's okay. But you're going to have to triple down on the intellectual grace. You're going to have to triple down and giving us a little bit of leeway to try our best to try and reason through this, because here's what I do know. More conversations on this is a good thing. Listening to each other is a good thing. And that's something that I believe really, really strongly. Um, so with that, my question for all of you to start with is, how do we have this conversation better? What is it about this that is so polarizing? What are the pressure points and, and, and what are the structures that we can build in that, make the, that might make this actually work a little better so we can hear each other? I think that's a hard question to answer. Um, my personal perspective is, for me, when I look at the abortion issue, the reason I am so passionate about it is because I have a strong compassion for every single person, and I want to see justice for every single person. And that, to me, extends to a lot of my, my other political positions. So when I approach the abortion issue, it's through that perspective of because I consider it a life it is hard for me to uh, temper the emotions that I have around seeing other people destroy that life. And that's something that I think people find very difficult to understand, because if you don't see it as a human life, then you don't have that same emotional attachment to it, I think. And you have more of an emotional attachment to the woman in the conversation, and you feel like you're fighting for the woman um, and the woman's rights. Um, I feel like I fight for the rights of the mother as well as the rights of the child. So that's sort of my perspective. And in, in terms of, I guess, toning down the conversation, uh, I recall one time I had a conversation about abortion with someone and they dismissed my views by saying, hey, you know, all fundamentalist Protestants uh, believe, that they, <laughs> believe that they should be pro-life and you're just drawing from that view um, and that's how you became pro-life. And you know, in every other country, this is not really an issue. And besides that, that not being true, I, I think that there are some assumptions 
that we have about other people in this conversation that could be deconstructed. So I think deconstructing these narratives that we've made about the other person that we bring to the conversation is the first step to making this more civil. I think assuming, so there are always going to be people who take uh, one position or the other just based on their political, it all comes in a package. So if I believe this, I have to be pro-choice, or if I believe this, I have to be pro-life. But for a lot of people who really will talk about the issue, who are passionate about the issue, um, I think that generally they're coming from Many of them are coming from a perspective of compassion. They see their their own perspectives as the compassionate position. Um, Hannah um, just articulated really well that um, pro-life um, people aren't just necessarily or or really ever um, just wanting to control women's bodies or some of the other narratives that we hear about pro-life um, individuals um wanting to or not not being compassionate um on the other hand um we also see that pro uh pro-choice men and women um often are concerned about they're concerned about traditional problems with the traditional family you know we don't have um we have a real serious issue with breakdown of families and so women don't have the support um they often end up as single mothers, children born out of wedlock um, are at such a high, um, they're a high percentage of children being born. And so um, these people who are on the pro-choice side as well are coming from a position of compassion. How do we help these women? What is the best way to support them, whether they are dealing with poverty and don't know how they're going to feed a child or another child, or they're dealing with an abusive partner who they think, um, you know, will put their life at risk if they, if the partner finds out that they're expecting a baby or some of these other issues, um, that really does drive many people from the pro pro-choice perspective. And so I think when we get rid of, like Hannah said, the assumptions that we know exactly why you must be pro-life or pro-choice um, and take a moment to listen, even if we disagree, that can make that conversation a lot better. I have so many thoughts. That was great. I just want to comment on, on two things that I heard the two of you say. Um, Hannah did this really well. And I, I remember reading a book on this. If you want to connect with other people, think about their values and tie it to their values, right? right? Being pro-life is about showing compassion. Yes, for the mother, right? Like that's important. Don't take away the compassion for the mother in their circumstance, but also tie some compassion to the child that is involved, right? And that's why there's always this big debate about, okay, well, when do we call it a child? Well, what you're really saying is when do, when do they deserve protection? When do they deserve compassion, right? And when we back up and say, okay, let's, let's think through that a little bit more. I think that's a really powerful one. The other one that I, I heard both of you talk about is kind of these Jonathan Haidt. They, they need to take height and turn it into a, an adjective, Haitian or something, you know, like um, you've got these values that are, that are across purposes of I can do what I want and nobody should tell me what to do. And at the same time of compassion and justice, right? And, and these two are kind of hitting against each other. Instead of saying, you have no values, you're a bad person, you don't care. I think it's a lot more honest to say, hey, it's okay. We have conflicting values on this topic. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means we're, we're prioritizing things a little bit differently. Let me tell you a little bit about why my values push me in this direction. Kind of going, going off that, I, I think that with the topic of abortion, there, there are really two or even more but very powerful 
rights or interests in some tension in the in the context of abortion. I I think that sometimes we who are pro life can underplay the importance of you know the, the, the kind of idea of bodily integrity and privacy these these values that are in on the kind of pro choice side, but these are really important constitutional uh, constitutional significant values. Um, that whether that and I think that doesn't equate to a right to an abortion because the, the right of the, the child's life out, outweighs that right. But I think that there are really powerful rights on both sides of the issue. Anytime you have these two very strong, very legitimate right claims um, on, on an issue, I think it's going to be very difficult to talk about. I, I would say also one one other reason that it, this topic is, is difficult sometimes is like from a legal perspective, I think the Roe v. Wade decision really hyper-polarized the topic of abortion in a way that was unhealthy for discourse on the topic. Um, before Roe v. Wade, the country was uh, generally uh, moving a little more openly, you know, a little more pro-choice, kind of liberalizing some abortion laws, but generally very conser somewhat conservative on abortion uh, by large. Roe v. Wade kind of swung very far to the direction of abortion on demand um, until the, the really uh, until birth largely um, or that that's the the way that it's shaped out in the United States made the U.S. a very large outlier um, in the international stage and I think that really polarized the issue um, the pro-life perspective I think it, the very strong pro-life perspective in some ways is a, is a reaction to the very extreme pro-choice abortion on demand laws that we have in the country as a result of Roe v. Wade and so I think the legal paradigm po polarizes the issue in a way that maybe without that legal decision you know, constitutionalizing the right we could have had a more reasoned discourse uh, probably most many states would have ended up in a more moderate position um, on the topic than they are at now that very extreme position I think um, comes from this polarization that, that I think Roe v. Wade uh, uh, caused to some degree I, I you know I work with with a lot of a lot of my students will always ask me about you know education related stuff why is this issue a political issue all of a sudden and I think part of the answer, and this isn't meant to knock democracy, I think democracy is great, but we need to understand that there are, there are problems with it. As soon as you put something up to a vote, it's political, and now it's politicized, right? And I think, I think that your example is perfect. As soon as Roe v. Wade becomes an issue, this is an issue that people can make or break their political careers by talking about it more, by saying, I want more votes, and I can do this by talking about Roe v. Wade. The other thing it does over the long term, though, is that judges just become another set of politicians. And it really, you know, erodes the confidence that we have in the judiciary as a separate, like, no, 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 they just interpret the laws. Their job is to be the fair people. And I think a lot, of, I, I think you're right. I think people still to this day will go all the way back to Roe and say, see, and there's our example of when people just legislated from the bench. That's probably the first case that I knew of when I was in high school, right? Roe v. Wade and activist judges and all of that stuff. And by the way, I don't think that that narrative is completely fair. I know that there are conservatives who've done similar things and done, done uh, damage to, to law. Um, but I, I, I still think that there is a real concern there um, from the legal aspect that a number, and, and by the way, some of my very pro-choice, very libertarian, like secular friends have basically said, yeah, no, it was a terrible decision, right? Roe v. Wade was just not good jurisprudence. Even if you are pro-choice, it probably would have been better if states could have made their own laws. And I think that that's a, that's a valid thing to talk about. Almost no one defends the Roe decision as it was written. Justice Ginsburg, for instance, was very critical of Roe. And Roe was effectively was over, overwritten by the, the uh, Casey uh, case in the 90s. 
Um, but that sets up a, a, this kind of undue burden test, which is the dominant test today. The problem is that that test is not very coherent or very clear. It's, it's just not clear what is an undue burden. And so for uh, more than 20 years, we've been fighting, or almost 20 years from, from, from Casey, we've been fighting what about what is that burden? What kind of burdens can the states put on abortion? And it's, it's not getting easier. It's getting more and more uh, <laughs> divisive in, in, in many respects. And I think that that's a signal to the court, or should be a signal that it really is time to reconsider the Roe-Casey framework. Uh, and I, I hope move back to an originalist understanding, which is that abortion was never protected as a fundamental right. I want to hop to Christopher really quick. Anything about the conversation itself that comes to your mind? You know, I've been very fortunate to work with Jacob Hess, who is the editor of Public Square. His background is a lot in dialogue. And we've done a number of seri a series of articles, um, especially on issues where Jacob and I really don't see eye to eye on the issue where we will try and outline the position of the other person, uh, try to do it fairly and clearly, uh, and then present both of them just as two competing narratives without trying to draw any necessarily um, firm conclusions from those narratives, just to understand what different people have believed. And early on in this process, what I found often would happen is that uh, Jacob would articulate what his point of view was and what I immediately jumped to was trying to explain, as Hannah alluded to, the underlying logic behind that reason and start to criticize the underlying logic. But what I found often is that, one, I would mistake what the underlying logic was, uh, but then two, if I stuck with it without judgment long enough, I would see an internal logic to what he was saying, and I could better understand where he was coming from and we could have a better disagreement. I think with that experience, uh, kind of seen through that experience, I think we see that a lot in the abortion debate, that when we are sharing with one another our points of view, we often immediately try to jump to, well, here is why this person believes this position, and we're attacking that, because we're often very comfortable attacking those things. And if we can just hold off on that and seek to understand first, then we can have much better, more robust conversations. But that's a hard step, especially when you find what the other person believes to be very invalidating, to be very dangerous or hurtful, and it can be really hard to, to stop. And I think in this case, that's exactly why we jump to, those, to, to the criticism, um, but it's a, it's a self-defeating cycle. It's not going to work. You know, there's a, the, uh, the one that I first heard it from was Brian Kaplan. So he's an, he's an economist at George Mason, and, and he calls this the intellectual Turing test. And the Turing test, of course, is you've got a computer or a robot behind one curtain, you've got a human being behind another curtain, and you've got uh, an examiner who's trying to figure out which one the computer is and which one the human being is. And the whole point is, you'll know that you're in a really, really good place with artificial intelligence when it's hard to tell the difference. In the same way, you should be to the point where you can articulate a defense of the other side faithfully to the point where they can't tell which side you're actually on, right? This is what you learn in debate. This is what you learn in a good English class. Um, and I don't think that it's just to learn how to articulate. It's actually to learn to understand, to empathize, to, to see the other side's view. I think that's a great one. Let me throw out a couple of other things that are on my mind on the, on the conversation. One is, um, I, I remember when I was growing up, I saw, I, I, I can't remember when it was, but somebody showed a video on this topic. And I said, oh, this is really gross and it didn't feel very good. And that was kind of the point. 
And then I decided to go out and do some research on the other side. And I saw an equally disturbing video of the other side that involved, you know, the, the same kind of thing, just from the other direction. That to me feels emo emotionally manipulative. And I think that's a really dangerous path to take. If, if the goal is, let me try to outgross the other side or attach to this experience, such a negative emotional, um, you know, response that I can, I can sour somebody on the issue. It's just, it's a really bad race to the bottom. Right. And I, 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 I think that this is an issue where the rhetoric has become the actual argument. Like we used to, we know that there are bad faith arguments out there, but now people believe them, right? So at one point I kind of laughed when I was like, wait, um, I, I heard somebody say, um, men can't have a position on this. And I kind of laughed and I said, well, yeah, but we vote. And it's important for me. I would rather be informed as a man. Like I'm not trying to say my vote matters more, but this is a democratic issue. This is important. It's a moral cause. Like I, if I'm going to vote, it's better for me to have the conversation. It's better for me to be informed. Um, I think that that used to be kind of a rhetorical thing. And, and by the way, there is some truth to that. There's some people that need to listen more to women that are, that, and, and I'm, I'm very much okay with that. But now there are people who genuinely are starting to feel, no, 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 if you're a man, please, you know, like we don't want your take. We're not interested. Um, it's kind of the way that we're starting to hear the word listen more abused, um, right? Where it's like, no, 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 you should listen more. How much more should I listen? Well, until you agree with me. Um, and that, that doesn't work for me, right? Like I will listen, I will hear you. That doesn't mean that we will agree. The other one, people still like being told what to do, right? And abortion ties fundamentally into sexuality. And one of the things that I, I'm going to argue in a minute is if we had a sexual ethic as a country and we said like, hey, here's what we believe about sexuality and like what the good norms are around sexuality, it actually solves a lot of the other problems down the road. But because of that, people get really frustrated and they say, hey, I don't want to have this conversation because you're just trying to control me. You're trying to tell me what to do. Um, and it's like, well, no, that, that's a simplification, but I can, I'm sure that some people are but I'm not one of them. But I think we need to have a conversation because my actions affect you and your actions affect me. We're in a community together, right? Um, this is why I'm, I'm kind of a libertarian, but not really. They, they have a really big blind spot for communities, right? For, for understanding that what somebody else does in their private life actually has a really big impact on me. And I think that that's worth mentioning. All right, before we move on really quick, I'm just gonna throw out a couple of things I've taken from our quick discussion on the conversation that I'd like to, uh, these aren't rules, but things that we could strive for in this conversation. The intellectual Turing test, give, give credit where it's due, right? Steel man the other side. Um, we're gonna avoid emotional manipulation and have a high level conversation about it as honestly and earnestly as we can. Um, we're not gonna trivialize the other side. Um, and we're going to give credit to the values that other people have who may disagree with us. And I think that that's a decent framework. It's not perfect. And I'm sure I won't live up to it perfectly, but I will be trying. I, I do try to listen pretty well. Um, but if that's okay with all of you, why don't we dive into um, the next question? I saw on Twitter the other day, uh, somebody who was not the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints explaining what the church's take on abortion was. And they were very sure of themselves. Um, and by the way, I think this is a lot of people, right? Um, I should have said this at the beginning. I actually meant to. Um, we're probably going to give a pretty center-right take on this, and I feel good about that. And I, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to box any of you, and you, you give your views, but I don't want anybody saying, "Well, you didn't have anybody on the other side." That's not actually the point of this podcast. The point is not to have, you know, a crazy left wing and a crazy right wing and a couple people in the middle, and like that's that's not a good recipe for having conversation. My hope with this is people who do agree with me, but also people who are thoughtful and can push me and I feel safe around. And um, that's the idea behind this conversation. I want to have a quick conversation about, based on your reading, and I think that there are some pretty clear statements on this, um, what is the church position and where do you see it being abused and, and kind of 
deliberately mischaracterized so that people can make hay out of it. Um, because that's something that I've been frustrated by. And I think it's, it's worth discussing for a couple of minutes. I was having this discussion just, just recently, maybe in light of the same Twitter, uh, thread you're, you're, you're thinking of, where there's an argument that the church is really, really pro-choice because there's an exception in, in the handbook basically says abortion is forbidden except in cases of rape or, or danger to life of the mother. Uh, I think actually life of the mother is you know, it's life of the mother and the and health of the child, I think is what, what it says expressly, but I, someone could correct me if I'm, I'm missing it, but these narrow exceptions, and it says, and then consult, you can, in consultation with the state, with the, with the bishop, it, it may be appropriate in certain circumstances, essentially. And so people will say that that means the church is, is pro-choice. I, I think that's, that's just not, not true in light of, you can look at President Nelson's talks, multiple talks over the years, President Elder Anderson's talk from this recent conference about the life, the, the, the importance of the pro-life position. And I think that, I mean, to me, I was thinking about this, the, the test for this is, in all over the world, there are many, many countries where abortion is illegal. Does the church ever advocate for expanding abortion rights in any of those countries? Does it ever push for uh, protecting this right uh, that people are saying, well, the handbook requires abortion to be legal? And I think the answer is no. There's nev never been an instance where the church has ever advocated for a more pro-choice, uh, pro-abortion position. Um, and, and so to me, that suggests that no, that there, there is no necessity for abortion. The church would be perfectly happy if there was no legal abortion, but it's responding in light of the legality of abortion. Hannah? Yeah, so the church's position on abortion in the handbook is that abortion might be permissible in terms of health of the mother, health of the child, rape or incest. And you're right, Daniel, that it does say consult with your bishop and it may be appropriate. Um, that's not, you know, a, a definitive if you're raped, therefore you should get an abortion. Um, and I think that's important to clarify because there are a lot of women who are raped, who have a strong desire to keep the child, and I want to respect that. Um, in terms of the argument that the church is pro-choice, I've never found it particularly strong, especially because President Oaks in a BYU speech directly addresses uh, this sort of line of thought where he says that some Latter-day Saints might be seduced by slogans regarding agency um, and that Latter-day Saints should stand up not just for choice, but stand up for the right choice. Um, and I think he really put that to, to rest when he said that. And President Nelson has also said that the wrath of God is upon governments that legalize abortion. Um, so we've had a lot of really strong condemnations of abortion. And one of my tests um, when I'm trying to determine a church position on something outside of the handbook too, is to look at the body of what apostles and prophets have said and see the consistency, right? I have not been able to find one source where abortion as a legal right is advocated for. I found many sources where abortion as a legal right is advocated against, but never for. So when I see arguments that the church is really pro-choice, I, I think that they come from people who value agency. And I think valuing agency is a really good thing. I think a lot of the time there are women who want to extend compassion to women who are in difficult situations I see that as entirely respectable. Uh, at the same time, I think that it does show that they might not be as aware of anti-abortion legislation, which often does account for those health exceptions. Um, and I think that, you know, it, it does go directly against the information that we have within the church. And I think that that's just an extrapolation that one could make, but I don't see much evidence for that extrapolation.
That's fantastic. I'm actually going to take just a second to read. A, you covered almost all of it, but I want to read two little bits from the, the official statement, which we can link to. Um, it says, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints believes in the sanctity of human life. Therefore, the church opposes elective abortion for personal or social convenience and counsels its members not to submit to, perform, encourage, pay for, or arrange for such abortions. Then it gives the three um, stipulations that you mentioned. And then it says, the church teaches its members that even in these rare exceptions, that even these rare exceptions do not justify abortion automatically. Abortion is a most serious matter and should be considered only after the persons involved have consulted with their local church leaders and feel through personal prayer that their decision is correct. Now, this next part is important. I think all of that feels really good to me, like personally, morally, in every sense. And then it says the church has not favored or opposed legislative proposals or public demonstrations concerning abortion, right? The interpretation, in my interpretation of this is really simple. If we as citizens get our lives in order and act with personal responsibility and with conscience as best as we know how, it solves the legislative issue to begin with, right? If we can figure out how to how to to take responsibility for ourselves, and that, that to be clear, that's not, you know, that's not blaming women specifically. There are a lot of men who need to get themselves sorted out, and that would solve a lot of the problem, right? Um, and and I I respect that all of the problem technically, um, but I, I think it's I think it's worth noting that the church's the church's public statements in my mind have almost entirely been on what we as private citizens need to do, and that carries with it a lot of 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 what where I think. The, the solution lies. I think what's been said is important, and I think those who try and present the church's uh, position as primarily pro-choice are are engaging in, in some kind of wish fulfillment that they're kind of hoping the church is, is there. Uh, but I do think that there are some sort of important uh, lines to that, that that we do need to consider. Um, right now, what we're seeing, a lot of anti-abortion legislation tends to be pretty strident. Uh, the states who are passing it are almost trying to elicit a court case and try to get as strong of a result as possible. And the church's position on abortion does allow for exceptions. Uh, there was something from the uh, President Oak remarks uh, from his devotional in 1999. It's called the weightier matters. Uh, he's quoting uh, a member of the church at length, and, and she says that the woman's right to choose what will or will not happen to our body is obviously violated by rape or incest. When conception results in such a case, the woman has the moral as well as the legal right to an abortion. And so I think as Latter-day Saints, the crux should be on trying to support the church's position, but there is some limits to legislating against abortion and our policy that I think we do need to consider. I think, as Daniel mentioned earlier, some of the, the history of abortion has made it so that these issues can't be wrestled about as clearly. I think as, as Latter-day Saints, we're really familiar with the idea that when prophets and apostles speak, they're speaking in a context. So I think kind of the classic example for um, us non-Trinitarians is looking at, uh, at the early apostles speaking to the Greeks, talking about there being one God. And we say, sure, sure, that's what they were saying, but that's because they believed in, in this, you know, all these competing gods and they were trying to talk to the unity. And that's how we can justify those, um, those verses uh, in light of our belief um, in a Godhead. 
Uh, and so I think similarly, when we look at abortion and we look at how consistently church leaders have spoken out against abortion, as Hannah has said, I think it's reasonable to say there's a context to where they're speaking and that where we're at as a society has been pushing towards more abortion. Uh, and so pushing back against that's the appropriate stance. But if there's a major reversal uh, in abortion jurisprudence in the United States, we may find ourselves in a position of, as Latter-day Saints where we are pushing for those exceptions, where we are going to have to stand up and say, look, we do believe that moral agency has been sort of violated here, and that should open up some, some exceptions. Now, let me just throw one thing in there. Sometimes my kids will come to me and say, yeah, but sometimes for that rule, I don't get in trouble because there's like the sub rule that, you know, lets me get out of it. And they'll, they'll only use that when I've gotten them in trouble in some way. And my response has started to be when nuance becomes a way out of the rule, it makes me want to be less nuanced, right? And, and I think there are some people here, I like the way you put it, it's wish fulfillment, right? It's, and I'm concerned about this because I'm seeing a lot of this on Twitter just generally, people will just, you know, utterly rest the scriptures or, you know, abuse the words of, of, of prophets and say, well, I think if you twist this, if you look at it from far enough away and you cross your eyes a little bit, it really end up, ends up magically looking just like my own personal political beliefs. Can you believe that? What are, what are the chances? I think that's a very dangerous game to, to engage in. And I think, you know, I, I, I think that we have prophets for a reason. We should listen to them. Um, and so, yes, there is nuance. At one point, I heard a quote about President Faust where, where in every meeting he was in, he would always simply ask, how will that affect women in the church? How will that affect a single mom? How will that affect a racial minority? He always had a lens for people who might not be considered in the mainstream, right? And I think that that's a really beautiful idea. And that's a, that's a really important and, and, and compelling thing. Um, that isn't letting people out of a, of a moral standard. It's asking, okay, how can, we, how can we trust people? How can we do the very best we can with this? Hannah, you were about to go. I agree with a lot of what Christopher said, but I would like to also note that in weightier matters, uh, President Oaks does address the exceptions. And when President Oaks addresses the exceptions, he says that Latter-day Saints should face the reality that the majority of exceptions do not constitute the majority of abortions and that that should not be a reason to be pro-choice. And I think that this is a, a glossed over point because a lot of people do use the Latter-day Saints have exceptions, therefore be pro-choice. Um, and, and this is one of the, the times that President Oaks has said, no, those exceptions don't constitute a pro-choice position. So while I can see the impetus for, for nuance on this, I do think it's also important to note that that has been addressed by uh, a living apostle. Go ahead, Daniel. One, one brief comment on that is that I, I think that, I, mean, I, I think everyone here, I, I would assume would agree that the life of the mother exception is kind of uniquely powerful of, of, an, of an exception. And so I, I could see the church, you know, if, if a law didn't allow for that exception, I could see them saying that that's wrong, that is morally wrong. Um, I, I think that the, the, the position on the other exceptions on rape, rape incest especially, is, is a lot more difficult and nuanced. There is a loss of agency or choice, but there's also still a life that could be brought to full term and and given life and, and and brought into the world and so i i don't know if the church would oppose a, a law that didn't have those exceptions i think it, it's difficult i've wrestled with it i've i've my, my mind on on the uh rate a rape exception has gone back and forth um i think in public square magazine i wrote 
coming out in favor of such an exception for some of the reasons you you highlight and i think i've gone back and forth and i, I now would, would go against that stance i've changed my mind to say like that it is not justified to uh, allow abortion that in in those circumstances um because of, uh, there is still the potential for life to come to term and you know adding another tragedy to a tragedy doesn't doesn't help but i, I think that that's a difficult difficult question for the church I want to. I want to just really quick, and then I'm, I'm going to pass it to Amanda. I was when I was growing up, I went to a Catholic private school, and we talked about being intellectually generous with um, with the people on the left. And I'm going to actually do that, going farther on the right than I normally would. Um, I don't agree with the stake, but when I heard it, it was very compelling and moving. And I think that there's something, you know, something worth listening to. This in my Catholic religion class, um, or no, it wasn't a religion class. Actually, it was an Italian class. But my Italian teacher was was very religious. And somebody just kind of piped up and said, yeah, but you believe that if a woman has been raped, that um, she doesn't have a right to an abortion, kind of challengingly, you know, kind of making fun. And, and I was like, oh, this is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable because you're challenging the teacher. And it's also uncomfortable because it's a really, you know, tricky topic. And the teacher got very calm and um, just looked, looked over at the student and said, I don't understand why one act of violence fixes another act of violence. Um, and I want to be really clear that a number of our Catholic friends are very, very sincere about this and feel very, very strongly that the tragedy of what's happened to the woman involved is a tragedy and it's ugly and it's terrible. And, you know, furthering that tragedy by also having an abortion on a child who's also completely innocent is not the fix, right? Now, I, I want to be really clear. I am very strongly in favor of that exception legally so that people can make the individual decisions they need to after prayer and consultation with a doctor and a consultation with their um, you know, their minister, their pastor, whoever. Um, but at the end of the day, I, you know, I, I think that that's a worthwhile um, perspective to take. I think that I learned something that day, even if I wouldn't require that in every case for somebody that I was counseling, right? Obviously not. Um, at the same time, I think that that's, that's a perspective worth keeping in mind. Recently, um, Hannah and I have talked about this a little bit. Recently, um, in the past year, I've kind of thought about the labels that I've typically put on myself, whether they're political labels or other ideological labels um, that tend to uh, kind of take precedence or that I might think about more than my label of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Using this, this language of I'm I'm anti-abortion, but I'm pro-choice. Um, I think it speaks to the need to focus a little bit less on labels and articulate a little bit more what we're talking about. Because being in favor of, of these sort of exceptions, I think um, if you are saying you're pro-choice because you're in favor of particular exceptions, I don't think that necessarily puts you in line with the pre um, predominant view among people who consider themselves pro-choice. Um, I, I think um, there's a lot of uh, attention to be gotten for people who say kind of wild things or things to get attention, um, like Latter-day Saints saying, I'm, I'm anti-abortion, but I am pro-choice. Um, but it really doesn't provide um, the sort of context um, for the conversation. And um, uh, yeah, that, that's, I think typically, I think that that has been my concern is, is when we use the label of pro-choice or even the label of pro-life without having the, the proper um, conversation about it. I, I, well, and part of what's, somebody said this a minute ago and I can't remember who it was. I, I think Christopher was talking about this. Um, Part of what's really tricky is if you if I say I'm pro-life, then people think that I'm a zealot and I'm a crazy person and I am going to pass the craziest possible piece of legislation out there. 
Um, and if I say that I'm pro-choice, it's kind of the same way. It's like, oh, so you want abortion on demand. And it's like, you only know, like, these are really, really clumsy, you know, not high resolution labels to use. Um, and I think the best way that I, you know, I think I am pro-life and meaning that I believe in the sanctity of life and that I, I think that it's really, really important to, to talk that way. And at the same time, if we can just be a little bit patient with each other and say like, okay, you're pro-life, what does that mean to you? What does that mean in terms of legislation? But what does it mean in terms of your personal ethics? Um, the other thing I was going to say, one of you was commenting on this a second ago. Um, I really do believe that if we live the law of chastity, 95% of abortions would go away. Um, and I think if we eliminated rape and incest, 95% of the arguments against abortion would go away. And the unfortunate reality is that um, rape and incest is an incredibly painful and difficult topic, and it's really, really hard. And mostly it's used as political football for something where the vast, vast majority of the cases are not actually about that at all, right? It's about a rhetorical point. It's not actually about arguing honestly and, and directly. Most abortions are, and you know, I, I don't mean this to be flippant, but convenience means that it's not a life or death situation. It's because it's going to be hard to have a child at that time. That can be really hard. And I'm not discounting how hard it is to have children. I've got some, right? They're, they're, they're not always easy. And at the same time, there is a way to make sure that doesn't happen. And that is to have a sexual ethic. And by the way, if that's not doable for you and you're not religious like I am, and you, don't, you think that's a silly old fashioned rule, first of all, let me keep trying to convince you because I, I look out at the world, I'm like, man, we really need this. Like it would, be, it would just solve so many problems. But if not, there's also other options. There's birth control, there's, there's, there's protection. And yes, men need to do it too. Um, but I find that to be a really, really important piece as well. Um, I, sorry, Hannah, go ahead. And then I want to get into Texas's law really quick, but Hannah. I think once we frame it as a human rights violation, that's when I think we can have a more productive dialogue about it because then we're removing this barrier that I think exists for a lot of people to accept that abortion is difficult. Um, so I think while I find your framing interesting that that might not reach enough people because we're living in a society where people uh, are spiritual but not religious or are um, not spiritual at all. And I, I don't like that abortion seems to be a Republicans only thing nowadays. I find that to be kind of gross, to be honest with you. Um, I don't consider myself a Republican. Um, so I, I, I want more people who are liberal and leftist to be pro-life because I think that there's a social justice imperative with it too. And I found that a lot of my more liberal views corroborate with my view on, on being pro-life once I sort of tie them together. So I, 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 what I'm trying to say is that um, I think the gospel of Jesus Christ is for everyone and will save everyone. And I think that that is good. At the same time, I think it is pragmatic to focus on abortion as a human rights violation, if that makes sense. No, it absolutely does. I, I think that's that's a, a very good point. I think, and I think there are a number of secular pro-life people out there, including a few people we all follow on Twitter, right? Like that that make those arguments pretty compellingly. And I'm a little bit surprised that the left hasn't embraced this issue. This is literally the oppression of a voiceless class of people who are under not just subjugation, but like elimination, right? And, and that's, that's a very compelling case, I think. I think what it boils down to, again, going back to democracy and the problems with it, if they don't have a voice and they don't have a vote, then what's our incentive to listen to them? It, the only one that I can come up with is because it's moral, because it's the right thing to do. Daniel, I think you were gonna say something. You know, ben, can I jump in? Yeah, first? please go ahead. Um, I uh, really liked what Hannah said, and I think there is a lot of pragmatism to it. And as I think we're, people are trying to expand 
those who uh, kind of the perspective on abortion to a larger group of people is the right approach. But I did want to push back gently on, on one part of it, kind of swinging back to what Amanda had said earlier. And that's this idea of sort of abandoning our moral judgment in the public square. These people who say, I'm anti-abortion, but I'm pro-choice are suggesting I've wrestled with this issue morally, but I don't think that my moral judgment is good enough to put it in the public square to wrestle with it and say, I think as a society, this should be one of those voices that are a part of our democracy. I've decided to opt out and let everyone else have their own position and not worry about wrestling it, this democratically. And so I think you're right, we should find arguments for abortion that can appeal to a large group of people because the reality is we live in a pluralistic society. But when we're talking to people of faith, I think it's important that we avoid telling them that their faithful perspective on abortion doesn't have a place in the public square. That is, they've come to these religious convictions about abortion. Those are valid positions. Those are well thought out positions with a lot of tradition and ethical backing that they can rely on. They are not less than in this conversation because their position on abortion comes from a religious perspective. And again, that's not to diminish what Hannah said at all. I think that's a really good way to talk about the issue. But I think when we do that, we just need to avoid implying that those who, who do come at it from a religious perspective are somehow, you know, are somehow less part of the conversation, which of course you didn't, but. No, that's that's a fabulous point. Okay, Amanda and then Daniel. I just wanted to to beat my drum a little bit um, of uh, everybody has a worldview um, with regards to what Christopher was saying, because um, assuming that our religious worldview isn't relevant um, when talking about politics, um, is assuming that we have as religious people that we have some sort of particular condition where we have a worldview, we shouldn't be imposing our worldview on other people when everybody comes from a particular worldview, whether it comes from their um, religion, their um, their racial or ethnic culture, their uh, country of origin, whatever it is, everybody has various kind of things that come together to create a worldview. Um, so that's not unique, whether you're a Latter-day Saint or, or even as a religious person. Um, and uh, so I used to, I these are things that I, I used to believe, as um, I said earlier, a lot of my views have shifted both on abortion, on something like um, same-sex marriage, the, the the same argument is made, well, I shouldn't have to put my, or I shouldn't have to um, worry about your religious views being brought into the conversation. Well, my religious views are just as important as your views um, that come from whatever your background is. That's such a fabulous point. Daniel, go ahead. One thing that I found very compelling in the past couple of years has been there, there have been efforts in states to do things like ban abortion when it is motivated by the desire to uh, eliminate Down syndrome children uh, from the world or when it's motivated by uh, sex discrimination. Uh, abortion is based on race as well. And so there, there's been an effort to ban those. Um, there's been, I, I, I think the Texas law has gotten a lot of attention, but there have been a couple of very interesting developments in in, uh, uh, in courts, uh, in the Sixth Circuit in particular. Um, there was a, a couple of months ago, uh, Ohio law banning uh, Down syndrome-based abortions that was upheld. Uh, uh, but just this week, um, there's a, a different Sixth Circuit panel um, that struck down uh, a, 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 um, a law uh, that banned 
uh, Down syndrome, race, and and gender-based uh, abortions, and the, the reason they said it was it was it was vague. They said it was unclear what exactly how you'd apply this if you're a doctor. What laws are are uh, are not affected by this? But I think this is to, the the connection to what we we're talking about earlier. I think that's that's another very powerful moral argument that I think we we as poor life in, uh, individuals should be making more forcefully, which is abortion uh, results in um, targeting and uh, uh, people based on their race, based on their, their gender, based on their uh, disabled status. Uh, some countries have been very proud of almost completely eliminating Down syndrome uh, children from being born. Uh, and I, I think that that really speaks um, to the, 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 the ideas of identity and, and uh, protection of minorities that I think resonates with the left or that might not be as receptive otherwise to pro, um, pro-life arguments. My little sister has Down syndrome, and uh, it's something that we talk a lot about in our family. Of, I, I wish there was a cure, right? I wish that she could have a, a normal and healthy life, but the idea that she would simply never have lived has never felt acceptable to me. Um, and I also think that there is a pretty clear story um, in abortion of injustice, of, of racism, of eugenics. Um, and that's something that needs to be grappled with, right? And I think it's okay to raise that without saying that people who are pro-choice are racist or eugenicists. I'm not saying that. But this is the kind of thing that if, if there was a right-wing university that had sponsored a similar program, they would be asked to change their name, make a public apology, tear down statues, and for good reason, right? It, it's ugly, ugly stuff. And yet it kind of gets a pass um, because it's abortion and because the left has kind of just decided that it's going to be fine. It's not a big deal. Um, and I think that that's something that we should confront a little bit better. Well, fantastic. Um, really quickly, and I don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because it's the, it's the controversy of the day, right? Controversy du jour. And I, I want to be careful not to engage in that too much. But part of the reason why we felt to, to have this conversation was because there's a lot of discussion. General conference is coming up. If, if abortion is mentioned at all, I'm sure people will be very ready to misinterpret it deliberately or to get their outrage on or, you know, what else it is. So that was one thing I wanted to cover. But the other one was this Texas law. And I think Christopher, and I, I will start this out by saying I have not researched it enough, okay? I, I have done just enough to be dangerous. I have relied on the opinions of others. And so this is, a, this is an open invitation for all of you to correct me. And I hope that we all have different opinions on this. Um, I, I kind of get my... Um, I get my opinions in some sense from other people, as everybody does. Um, and if it's somebody I trust... Um, it causes me to, to hit pause or to tap the brakes when they go, I am really, really, really pro-life and I am unsettled by the Texas law for a few reasons. And some of the people that I do trust have said that. They've said there are, there are complications here that, so Christopher, you mentioned the really strident laws, right? I remember Mitt Romney once saying, there's this race to be holier than thou on abortion. Now, to be fair, he had some you know stuff that he had to, had to sort out with the, um, with the whole issue of abortion. So I'm not trying to cover for him. But I think he did nail down that there is, in fact, sometimes a competition to, to say, I am the holiest of, uh, you know, I am the most pro-life. It's not enough to be generally pro-life or pragmatically pro-life, right? Um, I consider myself to be one who wants to see abortions reduced and to see, um, you know, that intelligent, thoughtful laws that cause more, more good than harm. And they're not about, you know, signaling that I'm the best Republican, but rather that are, that are actually going to make life a little bit better. And I... I one of the one of I only saw two or three views on this. Two of them were, were right leaning people who no longer consider themselves Republican, um, who basically said, I'm really worried about this and I'm pretty pro life. And a third one was by somebody saying, This is great. This is going to own the libs. And that's what made me go, 
I don't trust this anymore. That was a really good way to let me know that I'm skeptical. And that, that's all I've done. So it might, you know, I want to hear from people who support it in Texas and who are like, actually, no, this is good. And here's why. Um, but right now, my, my anxiety level on this, on this is a little bit higher in part because I haven't read it myself. So educate me. Is that your view? Is that what your experience has been? Or, or, or am I missing something? Hannah, and then we'll, we'll kind of go around. I want to push back on something that you said to just frame my thoughts on the Texas abortion law. I generally dislike the law, um, and I'll explain why, but um, in terms of the causing more good to happen rather than harm, I sort of reject that worldview when it comes to abortion um, in terms of the way that I measure things, because I don't think I would say that about slavery. I don't think I would say that about the killing of other people. I don't think I would say um, you know, we should have murder be legal in some cases because it would cause more good to happen than harm. Um, I see, since I see abortion as taking a life, I can't sort of engage in this um, harm metric. So in that instance, um, it, it's difficult for me to see abortion laws in a pragmatic sense because I think that they're an inherently moral issue. And I think the moral issue at hand is whether or not you think it's okay to have it be legally permissible to take the life of a baby. Um, so that, that's the first thing that I would say. So in that sense, I, I do agree with the part of the law that bans abortions past six weeks. I think that that is a really important step forward. I think that that is very good. The part that I dislike very strongly is the $10,000 uh, aspect to the law because I, I have seen uh, people say that it is unconstitutional. I'm not sure if that's true because I'm not a constitutional law expert. Luckily, we have one here who can inform us on that. Um, but that to me seems um, just morally wrong to place the impetus on private citizens to police each other. And I think that that also creates uh, an unfair uh, scrutiny of women in, in ways that I think are very harmful to women um, themselves. I would rather see the focus be turned to abortion doctors. I think that that is the source of the problem, not women. Um, I don't think a woman in 2021 can entirely consent to an abortion in the sense that I would understand an abortion because our culture is so inundated with pro-choice thought and rhetoric. Whereas I do see the abortion doctor as having enough knowledge to know that that's exactly what he or she is doing in that instance. And I am totally willing to hold them more accountable than I am the woman, if that makes sense. I just want to throw out one thing, well, two things. One that you said that I don't think gets enough play in the media, and that is that um, we often talk about abortion as though somehow magically, you know, when, when a bunch of sugar farmers get together, they're a sugar lobby. When a bunch of film directors get together, they're the film lobby. And when a bunch of abortion doctors get together, they're just good, decent people trying to raise awareness, right? There is, in fact, a lobby. There is money to be made in this industry. It is very, very big business. And that does not mean that you have to agree with us to be able to say, yeah, there are a lot of people making a lot of money on this. And this is actually like the economist in me. I'm not actually a real economist. You should ignore everything that I say whenever I say that. Um, but the economist in me is going, look, this is, this is big, big money. And there are people who are advocating for this because they know that that's where their money is coming from. Um, and that's really important to your other point about what I said. I, I, I think it was pretty sloppy when I, I said more harm than good or something like that. I, I guess what I'm saying is I can be very, very pro-life and still not love a piece of legislation that is, that is, um, 
supposedly pro-life, right? And in the case of the Texas abortion bill, I'm looking at this and going, I am really not sure where I stand on this. I, I think I agree with you in terms of um, six weeks, although that's 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 extreme for the country, but I just don't know how else to justify it. Like, it seems like that's sensible to me. If we, if we believe that a life is like, anyway, I, I, I'm not going to get into that, but, um, but that doesn't change the fact that the $10,000 bounty still strikes me as weird. And I haven't heard anybody who's been able to mount a defense of that, that makes me go, oh, well, okay. Yeah, that makes sense now. And maybe, maybe there is that explanation out there, but I have yet to hear it. Daniel, what were you going to say? So I, I have, two concerns with the, the the Texas law. I think the first is related to what Hannah said, although I do want to clarify that the, the law does not allow you to uh, people, individuals to sue the, the, the women uh, who have abortions. It's the doctors or anyone who facilitates um, an abortion. My my discomfort there is actually that it allows you to sue some, someone like the Uber driver who drives you to the abortion clinic. And I think that's absurd. You shouldn't, you know, the, the, the doctor is one thing who's actually performing the abortion. But if you're going down the line to the person who drives someone to the clinic and there's nothing wrong with driving someone to a particular place in a city and you shouldn't be uh, subject to lawsuits. Uh, for driving someone to a part of town that has an abortion clinic in it. I think that that's an absurd, an overreach. Um, There is nothing problematic in and of itself with the idea of having a citizens be able to enforce a law or even allowing citizens to recover some kind of damages or or fees for for doing so. Other laws do that. It is an expansion of of kind of standing of the idea that you, the person injured should be the one suing, but other states have done that for environmental laws for another context. So it's not unheard of. What what is uh, I think more problematic to me about the Texas law is that it it's a, a designed in a way to avoid judicial scrutiny. Uh, it's designed so that the courts are have a, have a really hard time actually getting a case before them until someone actually enforces it. And so if no one ever enforces it, uh, the the idea of the the state is to, to shield the law from actual scrutiny. And that's very dangerous um, for me, from my perspective as a, a lawyer who does uh, cons- protect constitutional rights, states could use this in all kinds of ways um, that I think the conservatives that are pushing for this law would be very uncomfortable with. Now, I do think this, the case is a little overstated because eventually someone will actually bring an action in Texas and there will be a lawsuit. Well, I feel way smarter for having had you weigh in. So thank you for that. Uh, Christopher or Amanda real quick, and then we're going we're gonna to end on a different note. So I guess the only thing I have to add, um, as I'm not at all an expert on law, but um, one of the things as a person who was formerly, you know, formerly pro-choice, that was a real kind of driving factor away from me even considering the pro-life position was um, extreme laws that were clearly intended to um, own the libs um, or extreme sort of um, uh, attitudes that that were just meant to, that in my mind were just meant to virtue signal rather than to actually effectively either reduce abortions or convince other people that they should be opposed to abortion. Um, One that I think of a few years ago um, that obviously didn't really have any chance of going very far, but in Ohio, um, there was a proposed bill um, that women who had ectopic pregnancies, which is pregnancies that occur outside of the uterus, um, that, that obstetricians had to try to re-implant those pregnancies, which is, which is not a possible medical procedure, um, 
and and it's just playing you know political football with women who are in you know often women who have very desired pregnancies in really horrible situations so um i th just think it's really important to remember that as we think about pro-choice or pro-life laws that we want are we want those laws I, I agree with hannah i think six weeks is not unreasonable um I, I think that uh but i think that when we when we talk about these laws we need to make sure that they're practical laws there are laws that um and just in talking about abortion in general what are we going to do um to help people see that this is a very serious position this is not just kind of um a, jo a joke or we're not um unaware of how um how pregnancy works so i think that's that's a that's a really good note to kind of wrap this piece up i'm 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 thinking in my head this is probably a terrible analogy but i'm going to try and use it anyway um i think we're trying to build a castle out of blocks by taking one of the jenga uh, blocks out like that's the that's the nature of legislation trying to change an entire ethic around a big huge meaty issue like this abortion and sexuality and like personal responsibility i mean it's just coming from all sorts of different angles and saying well we're going to fix it and the way we're going to do it is by showing the libs about ectopic pregnancies it's absolutely nuts but that's the truth of any piece of legislation and to some extent comment is I, I think that one thing we've seen is a lot of these states laws are enacted specifically to bring a challenge to roe v wade or or to be pushing the envelope and i, I don't know if roe v wade goes away or if you know if, if the court really revises this abortion uh standard in a, a meaningful way which i think is is likely this this term i don't know for sure you know, it's, it's hard to predict for sure whether that's going to be a complete uh elimination of, of roe casey or if it's going to be some substantial revision of the undue burden test um to say you know you have to, maybe you have to you have to give women have to have a real chance to have an abortion but beyond that you, know, you can set very early limits once they've had a real chance to to decide and, and to, to act on on it i think some of the states some states might stick with six weeks um i think that's a good a good position a good pro-life uh protective position of life but some states may go to 15 weeks some states may do 20 weeks um uh, but uh, Europe, you know, uh, which is often you know very liberal and progressive, that that's the norm. Fifteen weeks is 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 pretty much what uh, fifteen weeks or even less is what most states have for abortions outside of a very good justification like the life of the mother. Um, and so I think we're going to see, on average, states come closer to that median, that mean, um, and some states are going to be more pro-life and some states are going to be more pro-choice. But I think we're going to get a lot more, uh, a lot closer to the average once the topic is a little less divisive, a little less of a, you, you either go to one extreme or the other. The way we've been talking about this has been largely ideological. And like I said before, I think that's good. I don't think there's, there's a problem with these strong ideological positions on either side. And yet that's primarily how this conversation goes. But the jurisprudence on the issue is, is not that ideological. This is a balance. Um, and it has been in terms of Roe, right? There's a right to an abortion, so clearly they reject the ideology that uh, that you know you can't kill any uh, individual. But there's also a limit to when the the abortion can uh, can happen on the far end, or at least allows the states to do that. So they also are allowing for for not the total autonomy. Uh, so there's kind of both ideologies are rejected here, and what they end up doing is is essentially creating a balance.
Right now, that balance isn't very good because it's been done by, you know, by a judicial body, which is, which is not the right body to do legislation. Um, but it is a balance. And so when we, we can talk about this issue in non-ideological ways and trying to figure out ways to move forward. And what's happened a lot since, uh, since Casey, it's been 30 years since we've really reapproached abortion law in the U.S. And the, the world around reproductive rights has changed a lot. Women have many, many more options available for them in terms of preventing pregnancy and maintaining bodily autonomy. And the life of these children can be preserved a lot sooner. When, when Roe was passed, any baby born between 28 weeks was essentially a, a death sentence. And now children born between that, before that time have, have a nearly 80% chance of, of living. Putting something at about 15 or 16 weeks we're getting close to the point where those children can be viable outside the womb. And as we're dealing with these questions and how, and how, they sh and how we're going to deal with it as a society, regardless of, of where our ideologies are, those technological advancements do matter in how we're trying to balance these rights. And so just like you know, Hannah tried to do earlier in talking about it in pragmatic ways, there are ways that we can talk about new abortion laws or how the Supreme Court might decide Mississippi's law that Daniel was referencing earlier, where we can push to reduce abortions, where we can push in this direction without necessarily having to implicate either of these ideologies. Because the reality is, is that's kind of where the law is right now. And so there's space there that may not inflame the tensions that we ordinarily see around this issue. That's a that's a, a great cap, and I was glad I'm glad that you said that because I was hoping to get your your perspective on the piece that you had written. Um, I want to end, if we can, um, on a note of um, on a bit of a different note. Um, I, I want to talk about something that you've learned from the other side, um, and this is this is pushing pretty hard for the civility uh, stuff, and so you'll forgive me because that's my shtick. Um, but I'll start with with a, a very specific example. Um, I was talking to a different Catholic friend of mine, and uh, I asked her about abortion. I said, "You know, you're Catholic, but you seem very pro-choice." She said, "Well, I am pro-choice." And I said, "Well, tell me more about that, because I, you know, you're Catholic and you're pro-choice, and that's interesting to me." Um, and she said, "Well, I'm just sick and tired of a bunch of men in the legislature telling me what I can and can't do with my body." Um, and I don't know what it was about the, 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 the setting and the situation, but I could really tell that she was just frustrated by people always telling her what to do. And it was a very legitimate feeling, right? And I still don't agree with her. I think that's, I respect her view, um, but at the end of the day, abortion is about another life other than hers, right? And I, I still feel that really strongly, right? And I think some of my friends on the, on, the, on the left are actually really good at saying, why is it that all of these laws are not designed to equally punish the men involved? Why is it that, that women are typically the ones who are most hurt by these things, when in fact, it's men who are causing the majority of the problems and they have just as much expectation on them to live up to a sexual ethic, right? And that kind of stuff. So that's an example of kind of what I'm talking about. In conversations where I've listened to the other side, that's something that I've started to say, you know what, that's something that I can agree with. It fits with my worldview, it fits with my doctrine, it fits with um, my religious beliefs and also just with how I view abortion stuff. Um, so I wanted to ask all of you, what is something that you have taken away that you think is valid and important as you've listened to the other side? Um, I can start. Um, so there is, um, I live down the street from an abortion clinic 
and um, pretty much every day there's a big group of protesters um, out front and um, they they spend a lot of time out there and I, I very much respect and appreciate um, their their passion for for life and for defending children. Um, I as a teacher, um, sometimes I wonder if that time uh, couldn't be perhaps better spent um, supporting at-risk youth and preventing, uh, you know, trying to think about these uh, people who, these women and, and young girls who find themselves in the position where um, they are, uh, feel like they need to, to seek an abortion in the first place. Um, I think that I really appreciate from the pro-choice uh, perspective that we remember. Like you said, Ben, that um, there are women and there are girls who are really negatively impacted by these unplanned pregnancies. Um, so just keeping in mind that that um, we do need to think about the, the pain and the challenges that come from um, young pregnancy, unwed pregnancy, pregnancy in, in situations where women are in abusive relationships. Um, I think that, that we should spend more time as pro-life people thinking about those things and thinking about what, what can we, what other things can we do besides um, protesting abortion, besides supporting abortion law, what else can we do to support these women who find themselves in these positions? I'll just speak to that really quick. I, I'm always a little bit frustrated when I see something on Facebook or, or social media that says, well, if you were really pro-life, you would also. Um, and then one day I decided to take it seriously and actually read through, you know, if you were really pro-life, you would care about whether they're thriving when they're in middle school. Or if you were really pro-life, you would care about migrants at the border and refugees and immigrants. If you were really pro-life, all of a sudden I'm reading down this list, and I'm going, yeah, but I do actually believe all of those things. I really am pro-life, right? Like I really do believe that end of life care is important. And like, I might approach it differently. I'm a capitalist guy, right? Like I don't, I don't think government programs solve the problems, but I actually am pro-life in all of these different ways. I think that that's gets to your point, Amanda, about like, how can we make sure that we're showing that this isn't just the, the ideological turf war of the latest culture war skirmish, right? That this is actually a broader piece that my really bad Jenga example from before was trying to articulate like, what I'm trying to get at is a broader ethic, right? Like uh, constructing like a, like, like a community worldview. And you can't do that with one piece of legislation. It has to be deeper and more all encompassing. Hannah, and then we'll go to Daniel. Um, I'm one of those people that I read the, if you're pro-life, then this, this, and this. And I decided to re-examine all of my political beliefs. Um, and it actually made me center left. Um, which I thought was kind of funny. <laughs> we landed in different uh, places on that, but I, I do have a lot of a lot of sympathy for the idea that if you're pro-life, you'd be against police brutality, that you would be against structural racism, that you would be against um, the death penalty, for example, because of the way that it has been used poorly, um, that you would be for universal healthcare. And I saw all these things and I was like, well, geez, I, I think that that's more my ethic than a conservative ethic. So I, I would say that 
you know, the, the pro-choice people made me liberal, but they made me even more pro-life than I was before, which I find very ironic. Um, but I do think it's, it's really true that a lot of people who profess to be pro-life, in my experience, um, might care about these issues, but might not spend much time explaining or understanding how their perspective on these issues might cause harm or might do good. And I think that there are instances on both sides of the aisle with that, um, where someone could be very pro-life, but not see that um, they're just fighting against abortion and they're not fighting for systems that provide uh, justice and mercy for all. Um, I love that you said, like, they tried to make me more liberal and they totally did, but just not on this one issue where they it totally backfired. And I'm like the most pro-life liberal, right? Like, that's amazing. Another day we'll debate capitalism. It'll be great. I'll, I'll explain universal health care. It'll be great. No, notice that I said explain, not argue, because I'm a horrible person. Anyway, Daniel, uh, I, now I will stop being rude. Daniel, you go ahead. No problem. Um, I, you know, I, 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 when I think about the this topic of learning from other people that are pro pro choice or people that have had abortions, it's kind of a personal thing topic for me. I, you know, I, 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 when I was a teenager, I was very pro life, and I was kind of very, you know, the, the ardency of a teenager, you know, thinking I was completely right, and it was so obvious, and I needed to kind of argue and prove my myself to be right. And I was talking to about abortion to my 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 parents one day. I think I'd I'd written an essay in school. I'd kind of compared abortion to slavery and 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 uh, and uh, Dred Scott and you know very very kind of sure of myself that I was I was right. And um, my my mother had a really strong reaction to that. Um, and I found out from her after that 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 she she had had an abortion um, and uh, for. A, a child uh, uh, before I was born, a uh, she had a uh, pregnant with so a child with Down, with, with Down syndrome, and she made she made a decision to have an abortion, um, and that really changed my perspective uh, in in many ways. Uh, and now I I, I do I, I did think that I, I now I do think still that that was the wrong choice to make. I think it was a not not moral to to abort a child in that circumstance, but knowing someone who was, I think, one of the best people I've ever known, one of the kindest, most generous, most loving people I've ever known who made that choice, and I think made it with a lot of difficulty. Um, she'd always wanted a child. It was her dream to have a child uh, her whole life. And she made that choice for reasons that I, I don't necessarily agree with right now, uh, but I respect her and her decision-making so much. And so even if I would come out differently, and even if I would even you know, come out differently policy-wise to, to ban even that, that I think it's so important to not vilify people who make that choice, um, to be compassionate and understanding of people in their circumstances and why they, why they make the, the, that choice, and to not allow our you know, very I think, righteous moral position to turn into condemning others who have made other choices, um, but to show as much compassion as possible. So for me, that that was a real lesson. And that's something I've tried to keep with me even when I uh, when I try to advocate a pro-life position. Superbly stated. I think one of the things that I've started thinking about is that if my position changes when I start to exercise compassion for somebody, and it probably wasn't a very good um, position to begin with, right? Um, I think the reason why I am where I am on the pro-life issue is because I am thinking about broadening my compassion to include the child 
right? It's not because I'm ignoring the compassion towards the mother. And also, and I think that this is a, a topic we could talk about for another hour is just the compassion towards the woman who was involved, right? The, 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 the difficulty of having an abortion, I don't think it's, I, you know, I think we can minimize that. And, and it doesn't, um, there are people who've had a very, very hard experience. And I also don't want to say that that's everybody, right? But, but I, think, um, I think that that's worth bringing up too. Um, I think what, what I've really benefited from in talking to people about this issue is a focus on the, the real lived difficulties of parenthood and raising children. I think in our culture, our culture is so suffused with kind of this perspective of expressive individualism that all too often we view having and raising children as sort of the ultimate vanity project, as opposed to something that is a fundamental social good, connecting the generations, raising the next generation. And I think too often we do see people looking down their nose at those who choose to have children or many children, that, uh, that families are often isolated and abandoned. And I think by turning our attention to those, to those struggles, to the real lived experience of parents, I think it can help us be be fuller and better people and that's something i think i've really learned to appreciate from those who've tried to turn the attention on on what it's really like to struggle with with a, a new a newborn baby interesting i had a professor who once confided that he was at a dinner and he had gotten an award for for something and he, I, I think if i remember right um and uh, they were introducing him and the people at the table didn't realize that they were introducing him and they said so-and-so is this professor of blah 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 and we're very excited to welcome him and he has five children and when they said he has five children somebody at the table went huh, this guy doesn't know what birth control is and he was sitting right there right and then he you know stood up and walked up and th that person probably got really you know embarrassed um, or at least that's how I'm telling it in my mind. I'm sure I butchered all of that because it's been, it's been, you know, it wasn't yesterday that I was in college. Um, it strikes me that when I talk about my awful Jenga metaphor, a part of what I am trying to get at is families. And part of what I'm trying to get at is that for a very long time, we understood that children were not just an investment for the couple. They were an investment for the entire community. That when I have a child, I want my neighbors to be there to help out, to be moral examples to them, to, to if they see them cursing as they're walking down the street, to give me a call so I can talk to them, right? And, I, and, and that was just kind of the understanding. And I'm sure that there's some nostalgia in there and I'm mis misremembering how awful it was in the 50s or I, I don't know, fine, okay, whatever. My point is that we had an ideal, even though we didn't live up to it. And the ideal was that children were not a vanity project, they were an investment, that we believed that raising the next generation was one of the most important things we could do, that um, marriage was the best possible place to raise kids, that two parents uh, do different things than just one. And that isn't to judge anybody, right? And I, I think, Daniel, your, your story was incredibly vulnerable and, and incredibly powerful. When we have this conversation, the goal for me, at least, is certainly not to judge anybody who's been through this. That's between you and God. Um, and in fact, I, I, I really believe that, you know, my understanding of, of what we call the atonement, that, that there is such a thing as repentance and that we can fix those things is actually really deep and really powerful. And at the same time, it is a conversation about how do, how do we get this right as a country? How do we think through this so that we can actually be on the same page? So that we're not trying to fight these endless battles over, over legislation. We can actually come together and say, well, we have an understanding of what each other believes about this topic. Well, thank you all so much. This has been an absolute delight. Um, I, I am taking away a lot from this. I think that I've learned. And I also just appreciate being able to model for some folks 
hey, this is hard stuff and I don't have all the answers. And I, you know, and I'm talking to friends that are smarter than me and I'm smarter at the end of the night. So thank you for taking a little bit of time. Um, and, uh, and we'll talk again soon.